You're listening to the Popzara Podcast. It's movie time. Marty! You've got to come back with me. Where? Back to the future. What are you doing, Doc? I need fuel. Go ahead, quick! Get in the car! No, 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 look, Doc, I just got here, okay? Jennifer's here, we're gonna take the new truck for a spin. Well, bring her along! This concerns her, too. Wait a minute, Doc, what are you talking about? And what happens to us in the future? What, do we become assholes or something? Right, we're into the future where we become assholes. We're going to save the future. Welcome back to the Movie Time Podcast brought to you by PopZara.com. That's right, it's PopZara's movie theme podcast talking about movies that we love, talking about in a fun way. This is your host, Nathan Evans, talking once again with my movie cohort, the Siskel to my Ebert, Mr. Ethan Brem. Ethan, welcome back. Do I have to be Siskel? You, we can switch. Okay. We could be, we'll just call him Fat and Thin. No, I, I think we like Cisco though. We don't hate Cisco. I'm, I I got a love hate thing for Cisco. As does he. Well, you love to hate him. I think. <laughs> yeah. Woo. He's <laughs> he, he's definitely not the cultural epoch that uh, Ebert is though. That's pretty clear. No. No. So you know what's funny though? I will say this about Cisco and Ebert. Ebert, before he passed away, R.I.P. By the way, he he made a big stance about calling video games art or not art, and he was against it. Mm. I think had he lived a little longer, I think he would have changed his stance. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's hard. It's hard to watch, uh, you know, uh, Mario and Luigi jumping into boxes and uh, <laughs> versus uh, what it is now. But um, yeah, I think so because you know we're all waited for the new uh, Super Mario movie with Chris Pratt and uh, Jack Black and Seth Rogen. I yeah. mean, I can't wait. Like, I, yeah. I'm so excited. I'm, I can't. Oh, really? sleep. Are you I, really? I can't sleep. <laughs> no, I'm, I don't know anymore. We'll, we'll we'll figure. I have no comment on this one. All, all I know is that the original Super Mario movies, much like the original Street Fighter movie, both from '93 and '94, are horrible films that have somehow held up as watchable. Yeah, they're kind of fun. They're kind of fun, and they have a lot of imagination because everything that came afterwards was terrible. And speaking yeah. of going back to the future, we are talking. On this episode of Movie Time, we are, if you didn't guess from the opening cinematics, about one of the most popular and beloved movies in history, which is oh, really, yeah. really, really impressive considering it's, chronologically, it's not that old in Hollywood time. Mm-hmm. We are talking about Back to the Future, 1985, and as a bonus, we're going to be sprinkling in the other two films in the trilogy, Back to the Future Part 2, 1989, and Back to the Future Part 3, 1990. Now I picked this one, and I but I think you could have easily picked this one because I both think we both love this. Like everybody listening, you all love this movie. Nobody hates Back to the Future, right? No. Is it no. is it universally beloved? I think it's maybe the most uh, unanimously chosen favorite film, if there is one. If that it, makes sense. Well, you know when uh, AMC theaters during the the COVID pandemic was uh, shutting down for the most part, 
very few new movies were being released cinematically. So there was a spattering of old movies being brought back to the theater. And the main one that was being played at AMC theaters was Back to the Future. Nice. So this yeah, movie helped. It helped keep theaters alive. Yeah, it, it's it's definitely the probably the retro movie I've seen the most in the theaters. That or the first Star Wars, one of the two. So let's <laughs> let, let's talk real quick before we get into the nitty gritty of the film because, full disclosure, we both love this film. We're probably not going to be very critical about it, even though we probably no. we probably could, but we're not going to be. Uh, the most the the biggest question we have to get out of the way real quick, and before I ask that question. It's become very annoying listening to people talk about Back to the Future. And if you've ever listened to the commentaries, which I think you have too, mm-hmm. you know that uh, writer-director Robert Zemeckis, along with Bob Gale, they don't like talking about this movie the way nerds like talking about this movie. Yeah, They understand its place in pop culture. They don't want it to continue as a franchise. It's done. And I think that's pretty oh. clear. Bob Gale gets, like, upset when people ask him the question. Yeah, no sequels, no remakes, no prequels, no nothing. Yeah, and even Spielberg said that, too. Yeah, and what I'm worried about is after they, you know, heaven forbid they pass away, the rights get reverted and somehow they figure out how to do it. Oh, it's going to happen. And, you know, we're going to have, you know, Back to the Future, the prequel, like, How Marty Met Doc or something. Yeah, So or like Doc, Doc origin story. The Doc origin story. As a boy growing up, he was bullied in school, and Mr. Strickland and him were, were fought, used to be best friends in science class until an accident lost Strickland his hair. Like, you're going to have all that nonsense happen. You've thought about this before, haven't you? It's so – all I have to do is take the worst, most obvious idea, and that's a movie. Yeah. Because it's all bad. It's all yeah. a bad it's, – it's basically Solo the movie where – you're going to see the origin of things you didn't care, you didn't know you wanted to see, and don't care that you did. Yeah. Like, like, let's just get this out of the way real quick. Here's my question. So, everyone says, how come a teenage boy is hanging out with an old crazy professor? Like, that's the biggest question. Why is that? Mm-hmm. And the question is, like, do we know how they met each other? No. I don't think... I, I mean, there's been... I mean, maybe there's... In comic book form, there's some stuff... Uh, I don't know. I've never read the comics, but maybe there's something there. Yeah, how does Marty McFly meet Doc Brown? I well, I think. Do you know the answer? Yeah, is there I an think, answer? Yeah, I think the answer is well, they met in the past. Like, I think that's the answer. I think the answer has been sitting right in front of you all along. That huh. Back to the Future is the origin story. Marty McFly goes back to 1955, and he meets Doc Brown and asks him to help him get back to the future. That's how they it's met. Just a loop. It's yeah, a loop. just it's just a continuous loop. It's Interesting the, theory. Yeah, it's the only concept. Theory. It's the only thing that works. Because, because in the rest of the film, there's multiple times when they screw up with the timeline and it causes people to be erased from existence, mm-hmm. including part two. They cut that out with Biff. But yeah. if you think about it, if Marty doesn't meet Doc Brown, none of this happens in any yeah. timeline. They have That's the one constant in the universe. The one fixed point is that Marty needs to meet Doc Brown. I think everyone loves the enigma of their real friendship and just how it's so random. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's unlike any relationship in, in cinema because there is no sense behind it. It's not like Luke and Obi-Wan where it's like, okay, he taught his dad. You know, there's some sort of like connection there. There's absolutely no logical, other than your theory, justification for them to be friends but yet they are and they're best friends and 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 they're best friends and by the way marty's like the, the 
the coolest character of the 80s wasn't played by Tom Cruise or <laughs> Matt Dillon. It was Marty McFly, in my opinion. And he was best friends with the wackiest scientist yeah. ever. Like, the paradigm for wacky he's scientists. The, yeah, he's the cool kid in high school. He plays guitar. He's got a hot girlfriend. He's popular. I mean, yeah. complete opposite of his nerdy dad, who's a dork. He's yeah. got everything going for him. Yeah. And yet his best friend is an old scientist. <laughs> so weird. <laughs> but but you know what's fun about this whole thing is that it's not that it's not satisfying that you don't know. It's the fact that you don't have to know because the relationship is perfect. Yeah. And I think I think a lot of people have discussed this and I think you and I have discussed this in private. This may be the most perfectly written film of all time. And I don't mean perfect as in you can't get any better. I mean it's airtight as far as like logic goes. Yeah, it, there's there's uh the payoffs are always – I mean there's so many things that get paid off at the end and it's amazing. Like there's so many little details and then they all just come together mm-hmm. over the course of the film for these amazing payoffs. Also though, as, as far as Robert Zemeckis goes, if you think about it, if you think about it, the movies that he made afterwards, this is really like a trial run for things like Forrest Gump, for Death Becomes Her, or even like Contact or any of those crappy Absolutely. CG movies he made after. Ooh, those crappy oh. movies, man. A decade of shame. The opening cinematic where they show the the pan over, for example, from the newspaper showing the background story that you don't need to read. Mm-hmm. What, what would kids call that today? They call that like lore, like in video games where you don't have yeah, to like read the mythology. story. Yeah, but if you do read it, it's cool. That's the same scene from Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Yeah. Exactly the same thing. Exactly. Or, or scenes when Marty invents rock and roll and the skateboard. Like, <laughs> that's from Forrest Gump. Like, yeah. it's all right there. It's all it's these there. Little, these, these little things that a script doctor would say, you know, take out that Chuck Berry scene. It serves no purpose. But then, like, maybe, but it's also just these, the, yeah, like you said, it builds up the mythology. And, and by the way, the Chuck Berry scene is kind of like their way of celebrating their victory. Exactly. Before the, before the second really stressful task gets <laughs> underway. But uh, One of the most satisfying I want to say climatic scenes in movie history, by the way. Um, probably anything on par with like a Frank Capra film is The Enchantment Under the Sea Dance, which is oh my gosh, which so is emotionally good. fulfilling and satisfying in a way that that a million Marvel movies could never do. Yeah. And speaking of which, uh, like I said, so as complex as the first movie is, as a tightly run like Rube Goldberg machine that it is cinematically, when we get to the second and the third movie, which are essentially just one big movie they take that concept of this tight script and they try to replicate it. And I think for the most part, they do a good job with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think the second and the third movie are as tight or as perfect as the first, but it's still, if you think about the complexities of not only filming two movies back to back, but filming a movie that is so meta-driven and so complex, I I don't think there's ever been a more like cinematically ambitious movie than Back to the Future 2 and 3. I really don't. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I don't think that any other movie can get away with this much, uh, like, shameless parallels <laughs> for all three. Like, the thing where he wakes up and his mom's there all in all three movies. Yep. Um, or grandmother, it, it, or great-grandmother in the, in the third one. Yeah, well, it's not just fan service, though. It's also kind of just makes sense uh, to, to the theme of, you know, history repeating itself or um, all these... This, this like, string of, of, um, of time that runs through you know, your lineage, whether your ancestors and whatever. Exactly. Exactly. And, and if you think about the audacity of it, tell me if you agree, 
So by using the same actors to play different roles, to play different versions of themselves or family members, and then you have different loops, like you said, in different periods that repeat the same thing over and over again. On one hand, you're creating like you're creating a cinematic loop where it looks the same and you're saying, okay, I get it. But on the other hand, doesn't that play into the whole concept that time is, is a circle and that if you if you disrupt it, things you go off the rails? Yeah. Or yeah. So, see, it sounds smarter than it is. I just made that up. So no, to- totally, and I mean I, I know we're gonna get to the second movie, but yeah. I, I I honestly love the second movie. It's, it's oh yeah, also probably I mean Back to the Future is my top three favorite movie of all time, uh, and on any given day it could be my favorite. But um, Part Two is probably in my top ten. Um, I think it's I think it's awesome, uh, and and the fact that we see this, uh, and they touch on it in the third one too where this really thought-provoking idea of like this solidified world where in the first movie he changes like one a couple little things and then he meets his parents and then everything's the same in the in the back to the future in 1985 except like his parents are cooler yeah and like that's it but then (laughs) but then all these other things get changed in parts two and three and then like the world just crumbles (laughs) uh and that's kind of cool too it is and you know it's funny um we're going to get the obvious out of the way. Uh, I know they, they share a composer with Alan Silvestri, but Marvel's Avengers Endgame uh, does the world's biggest wink and nod to Back to the Future 2. And yeah. by winking and nod, they literally tell you in the movie they're ripping it off. Yeah. And, which they do. Which they use a conceit where they, they, they go back into the previous Marvel movies and they see those movies from different angles, which is Back to the Future 2. That's what it did. Yeah, and it's a lot of fun. And it's a lot of fun because it's so unique. It's 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 so cinematically satisfying that you have a movie, Ethan, that is so happy to be a movie. Mm-hmm. Like think about it. Like in the first movie, the world's not at stake. The world's not being invaded. That we're not going back and killing Hitler. We're not going to see the dinosaurs. It's just a kid who goes back and screws up how his parents met. Yeah. It's such a small story. Yeah, but big stakes for for him at least personal stakes. And um, I, I've heard Bob Gale talk about this several times, and he said he he got the idea for for it because um, he was looking at his dad's yearbook, and he was like, my dad was this, like I think he was like ASB president and like all this kind of stuff, and he was like, would I have been friends with my dad in high school? And that's just boom, the whole story was there. And um, it's so thought provoking to see because, and and I think it it makes sense. I mean. Crispin Glover and Michael J. Fox don't technically have chemistry, but I think that's the point. Right. Um, and Crispin Glover is so out there. And as an adult watching this now, I, as I get older, I love his performance more and more. Yeah, he's uh, um, he, he's so he, funny. He took a very different path in Hollywood that uh, that yeah. continues to be uncharted. I'll say that. Yeah. Yeah, Crispin Glover. Uh, for whatever you think about him from Friday the 13th and to <laughs> Charlie's Angels or anything, he's... He's, there's nobody like him. There's nobody no, his like Letterman, his Letterman appearances. Yeah, he's something else. He's basically Andy Kaufman, but less yeah. likable. I think in, in, in less intentional, maybe. <laughs> yeah, maybe he's not in on the joke. Maybe he's not. Maybe yeah. it's not a joke. <laughs> you know, maybe it's not a joke. Um, yeah. But I mean, we could talk about that all day long. Uh, let's just get into the nitty gritty real quick. So, sure. Back to the Future. If you had to, if you had to summarize it in less than a paragraph, how would you summarize the very first Back to the Future film? So, Marty McFly, Michael J. Fox, goes back in time. 
um, kind of on pretty much on accident after his uh, his doc his best friend Doc builds a time machine out of DeLorean, and um, he meets his dad inadvertently and screws up the way that his parents met, and all of a sudden he and his two siblings are at risk of not ever being born and the technology to produce uh or the plutonium used to produce the the uh, power to send him back to the to the past produce is not... the the chain reaction to generate the 1.21 gigawatts <laughs> yeah, the gigawatts, yeah. <laughs> so now he he and he has to meet doc for the again for the first time and uh, uh and figure out how to get back to the future you know what's funny? It so doesn't matter if he meets Doc in 1955 or 85. They're he, he they they become best friends very quickly. Mm-hmm. And when you watch their chemistry together, can you and I have said this before? Uh, Michael J. Fox and Christopher Lloyd have the best chemistry I've ever seen in a movie ever. Oh my gosh! Any two actors so that I've good. ever seen. Yeah. And I don't think that's our opinion. I think that's the opinion of everybody who's who made this film because. As everyone knows, this film was basically – there's a different version of this movie out there. Like yes. in cans somewhere in storage, there is a very different version of like 50% of this movie with actor Eric Stoltz playing Marty McFly. Yeah. And and, I, and essentially they had a practice run in, in making yeah. a movie and you could say – and by the way, that's kind of pretty much unheard of to film almost an entire movie and then film it again. Um, and that's might be why it's so perfect. Um, just mm-hmm. the way, I mean, they even said they got, they changed some things here and there to that. They realized that they didn't get right the first time around. Well, isn't that super meta? Because in the yeah. films, the actors keep having to repeat the same scenes over again, but in real <laughs> yeah. life, they had to repeat the same scenes over again, yeah. just, just to make it. And no one's ever really seen the footage, like heard the footage with Eric Stoltz. We've seen glimpses of it and clipses of it. But it's pretty clear from what we've seen that uh, Michael J. Fox is perfect as Marty McFly. He's yeah. absolutely pitch, pitch perfect. Like vocalizations, everything. He compliments Christopher Lloyd in a way that I've never seen before. I've never seen anything like it or heard anything like it. Well, both actors kind of have these unique cadences, mm-hmm. um, the way they deliver things. that, And actually kind of all five of the actors who are the main roles – um, I think they're all kind of perfect for the roles, and they're all really one of a kind actors. Um, uh, you know, Crispin Glover, even Tom Wilson, uh, Leah Thompson even does things that like a lot of actresses at that time weren't really doing. Um, and they all are are especially like Michael J. Fox. I don't think trans. I, I think I don't think it's a, a controversial statement to say he didn't transition a film well, other than this movie. These true. these movies. Um, and I think it's because he has these deliveries, this delivery that's more of a TV delivery um, at a time when TV and film were very much separate and act, the actors didn't um, go back and forth that much. And and obviously we see Michael J. Fox went back to TV. And he went back to TV. Oh, he had, well, he had major success. And if, if, if you're out there and if you're listening, he was amazing on that one season of Curb Your Enthusiasm. As yeah, and that's where he shakes the he shakes the <laughs> where they did the where they did the most Larry uh, Larry David thing of all, where they completely made his um, his Parkinson's part of the storyline. Yeah, where he was faking. He might have been faking it, and yeah. that's that's perfect. And the fact that he was able to do that was amazing. Yeah, well, and and 
also, the, you have, I mean, t- TV, especially back then, like sitcom, the sitcom world was very similar to theater. And you have a dude like Christopher Lloyd who was uh, theatrically trained and and he transitioned well to, to film, I think, because he could do all these weird characters. And, and mm-hmm. those are the, the roles that I think he really found brilliance in. But um, I think the, the reason why Michael J. Fox and Christopher Lloyd both work so well together in this movie is they both have that TV skill, but it's on film. And if they didn't have each other to both kind of be like, okay, he's he's – He's approaching it like a TV show, and he's approaching it like a TV show because obviously Christopher Lloyd is from Taxi. Um, I, I think it would have maybe been a little more jarring if, say, it was Eric Stoltz versus Christopher Lloyd, but it, because it was Michael J. Fox, who was very animated and very, yes. you know, everything he says was like, ah, like that. Like his voice, the inflections I have a, in his hey, voice is insane I have a for clip. a film actor. I have a clip. And it's a very famous clip. So let's listen to a clip of Michael J. Fox and Christopher Lloyd talking with all the cadences that Ethan just <laughs> hey, Here we go. Here's the clip. Three, two, one, and time machine. Ah, what did I tell you? 88 miles per hour! The thermal displacement occurred exactly 120 a.m. at zero seconds! Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, Doc, you disintegrated Einstein. Calm down, Marty, I didn't disintegrate anything. The molecular structure of both Einstein and the car are completely intact. Where the hell are they? The appropriate question is, when the hell are they? You see, Einstein has just become the world's first time traveler. I sent him into the future. One minute into the future, to be exact, and precisely. 121 a.m. in zero seconds, we shall catch up with him at the time machine. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, Doc. Uh, are you telling me that you built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? The way I see it, if you're going to build a time machine into a car, why not do it with some style? So, you know, I apologize real quick, Ethan. Um, as fun as it is to listen to, they're perfect, like, visually, too. They know how to act for the camera. They know how to, when they bug their eyes, they know how to make facial expressions. Yeah. They know how to do everything. And it's 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 such a synthesis of audio and video. Like, it really is. It It's it's one of the most fun movies I've ever seen. Maybe the most fun, actually, next to Star Wars. Yeah. No, definitely. And it's kind of... Uh, and I, in my opinion, I think this... I, I love Star Wars, and it's, I mean, also another movie in my top five. Empire Strikes Back and the, I mean, both of the first two at least. But I do think Back to the Future is more perfect movie, and it's also I think proof that endless entertainment and um, artistic brilliance are not mutually exclusive uh, mm-hmm. as people want to think that they are. And I mean, I know people don't really talk about Back to the Future when they talk about the greatest film of all time, even though I think you can make a really good case that it is the greatest film of all time. Um, just as far as how... I have a theory on that, by the way. I have a theory about why that is. Me too. Yeah, I mean, and it's, well, before I say what my theory is, I just want to say real quick, the music helps, by the way. (laughs) Can we be clear? Uh, The music helps in a way that it complements the actors and it complements the story in a way that I, again, speaking of Star Wars, I think without Alan Silvestri's soundtrack, I don't think you quite have the same film. And I think when you combine everything together... my theory is is that for a movie to be truly great, it needs a theme. 
And when you look back at all the great films of all time, from everything from, you know, anything from some of the Hitchcock films to anything by, uh, not John Huston. Uh, John Williams. John, well, not so much John Williams, too, but, you know, you have iconic themes in films from, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, West, like Western motifs and stuff in the Westerns and... Well, there's so many examples. See, I, the, the problem is, like, I'm, my brain is struggling to articulate the exact examples I want to give you because in my head, and I'm sure in your head, we all have ideas what great music is. Mm-hmm. But if you have, like, Lawrence of Arabia, you have the sweeping visage, you know, sweeping vistas of it. You have the iconic themes of 2001. You have yeah. Star Wars. You know, you have, you have these things. You add a great theme to it, and the movie transfixes itself. It changes in a way. Oh, yeah. You could have a great film without a great soundtrack, but you add a great soundtrack to it, then you have a really great. Then you have an iconic film. Yeah, they, and they don't do that anymore. I mean, and I, I saw they this really, really great. I saw this really great. Um, he's like a, a, a film critic on YouTube, and he, he had this video about um, I can't I, I don't even know which channel it was. I'm hmm. sorry, but uh, he had a great video about what the like, basically how no one can say like what oh what's the theme from uh, Avengers or what's the you know like no one. There's no themes anymore. And, there is a well. There is a slight theme to the Avengers, but again, I think that's because you have someone like Silvestri, who understands yeah. the necess- the necessity of it. But it's it's not a, a pumping, th- th- you know, symphonic theme. It's just but, a few bars. And a lot of them are though they t- they're taken from older movies though too. Yes. Um, but, man, there's. I wish I could give credit to this guy. I I gotta go find it. Um, but anyways, yeah. So it, it it is interesting though. I mean. Even as recent as recently as like the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, like those have really great themes. Or Harry Potter. Um, well, Harry Potter would be Williams as well, right? For the most part, he created yeah. the, the the he created the template, and it was taken over by other other composers. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't remember who did, who did um, Pirates though, but there's a like I said, there's a few other there's a few people that are heirs to the throne. But for, generally speaking, the the you know the age of the Williams and the Goldsmiths. And you know, and the Silvestris, and he even, um, oh, what's his face, uh, Danny Elfman, like oh, yeah. some of these guys are still alive, and their modern work is mediocre. And instead, everything is Hans Zimmer, Hans Zimmer this, and Hans oh my Zimmer gosh, that. She's in everything, and it's it's so forgettable. You you can pump yeah. in. You might as well just have studio music, because it's yeah. it's not memorable. It does. It's just generic noise. I think Pixar's stuff does really a really good job. Um, I yes, I think Gia so too. Gino does a lot of his, their stuff, or I used to at least. Well, I think, him and, I uh, think they are still doing a great, a good job of that, but there are a lot of. Well, it's Thomas Newman too, and uh, Randy oh, yeah, Newman. Thomas Newman. Yeah, they they do good work too, but I don't think they they're not creating iconic music that's linked visual, like the way the visuals no. are linked, the way they are. Yeah. Um, and anybody out there who's listening who thinks we're full of crap. I want you to do me a favor. Go to YouTube and find the original trailer for Star Wars. The original trailer where it's that voiceover, Star Wars, you know, a princess. And there's no music. There's no John Williams music. <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> it's a very different film. Yeah. It's a very different – like you have no concept of how good this could be until you, until you match it with the music. And, and I, think, I think it's important. I think music's a big theme in, in the Back to the Future films because you have Huey Lewis in the news. You have Huey Lewis in the movie. As a music yeah. thing, you have that iconic scene at the Enchantment Under the Sea dance where he invents rock and roll. Oh um, my gosh, I love that scene. When I hear Earth Angel, whenever I think of the third, I think of the Back to the Future version of that song. Yeah. 
and I'm and I'm flooded with warm memories of the camera work of when Leah Thompson is hugging Christopher Glover, and you know they just have that amazing kiss scene, and it's such perfect. It's perfection. It's a and then the strings moment. hit. The yep. strings hit right when the uh, you yep. know his hand comes back, and and the thing is, is is the CGI on that on that hand thing is is kind of notoriously bad, but yeah, yeah, it yeah. doesn't affect the the moment at all. In fact, if anything, I I think it enhances it, and I'll tell you why, because it's so dated. You accept yeah. it because you accept yeah. a movie. It's like anything else. It's like a beauty mark on a supermodel. If a supermodel has a has a nasty hairy mole, you call it a beauty mark. But if a wicked witch has a hairy mole, you say it makes her look disgusting. <laughs> like yeah. we are willing to compromise and and switch our values for our own intentions. And yeah. as far as I'm concerned, the special effects in Back to the Future are, are flawless. Oh, I think they're great, especially yeah. in part three. I think I think part three might have the best effects of them all <laughs> except for christopher no- lloyd's wrinkly turkey neck makeup well um, that was pretty bad but as far as like the they actually use like the like visual effects like they used i think some some like i uh ilm did some really cool stuff when it came to like the train at the end i thought oh yeah i was like holy cow this is 1990 that's a real size uh, train and um you know the best part so check this out back to the future too as everyone knows well i know and you know was the first ever movie to use that new camera. And it's got a name on it. I, I didn't write it down. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. But you can look it up. It's got a special name where it allowed them to film like on a dolly shot to allow them to put movement in the camera to have different characters in the same scene. And, mm-hmm. to, and today we can do that on a Macintosh. You don't even need special effects for that. But back then that was extraordinary. And you think to yourself, and here's my, here's my point. Tell me if you agree. There was a time when Robert Zemeckis was the best visual effects director in the world. Where he didn't just do visual effects. He made them service the story in a way that was creative. Yeah. Until he went completely crazy and off the and forgot the plot, lost the plot, and yeah. decided special effects were the story, which is not the case. Yeah, he was pretty awesome. Um, and even the stuff like with uh, the two, you know, where Marty McFly plays the same character or uh, in the, like I mean, multiple characters. Role, yeah, or or uh, or Tom Wilson. Um, you look at that compared to even. Uh, by the way, Vista. Know, by the way, Vista Glide is the name of the camera. Vista Glide, yeah. Vista that's right. Glide, that's the name of the camera. Yay! Yeah. <laughs> um, but even compared to what what people were doing, like Eddie Murphy did some stuff in the '90s, but mm-hmm. this was looked leagues better than that. Yeah, exactly. And but again, it serviced the story. So yeah. when you have the dinner scene in Back to the Future Two. Where it was uh, older Marty McFly makeup, younger like the Marty McFly Jr., and then you had him playing his own daughter in the same scene. Yeah, and they're interacting with each other. But you know, you you read about it and you read about how they did it. Oh, we had to super glue everything to the table. You know, we had all this stuff happen. Like they all ha- they had to shoot the scene like multiple times and put it together optically. There's no CG there. Yeah. Like there's no computer graphics. Everything's optical and. And I didn't, uh, I didn't know this, but there's multiple scenes, especially in the second movie, where they used uh, quick cuts. They use uh, what do you call it? Um, uh, oh goodness, what's the word for it, Ethan? You're a movie guy. You should know this. I know. I'm trying to think. Of what uh, you're talking about. No, it's um, it's when they use matte paintings, and so they use matte oh, lines yeah. to hide transition scenes. And so, if you think about it, not only did they have to plot this entirely, this entire movie, uh, like thematically. They had to plot where they're going to insert the special effects. There's so many layers to this film. There's literally layers, layers, literally. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, I think I think the uh, just the 
I think it, Back to the Future and its sequels are kind of just um, a product of this assemblage of geniuses where mm-hmm. just n- all the right choices were going to get made. Um, and it was almost impossible for anything inherently flawed to slide through, uh, you know, where problems could get fixed um, properly. And, and, and the that yielded just... Um, really great movies um and i i mean i know people are kind of more uh on the fence about two and three i love all three um not equally but um one and i love one i love two and i love three but um probably in that order um but still i think they're i think they're all amazing movies and it's because of the the minds behind it you know it's funny we don't talk about this anymore because everything today is a sequel. Everything's plotted to be a sequel and a trick, you know, a threequel and a and a quadrology and everything. But yeah. Back to the Future One comes from that time when movies weren't necessarily going to get a sequel, and sequels weren't necessarily going to be as good as the as as the original. You saw this with the original Star Wars. That was clearly not meant to be a trilogy. You know, Back to the mm-hmm. Future. You have Gremlins. You know, you have all. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Or, or even the Matrix up until like two thousand, you know, nineteen ninety nine. You know, you have you have things that were meant to be a one and done, and and everything that came after that, including Back to the Future two and three, were grafted on and had to work within the limitations of what they could do cinematically. Mm-hmm. And I think with Back to the Future two and three, they took advantage of these limitations and played with it and said, well, why don't we just go back to the first movie? Yeah. But along the way, though, let's go to the future. You know, and let's 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 go back and change the let's go Jack and change the present, and that gives Back to the Future to a very unique place in movie history that I don't think has ever been done before, Ethan. I agree totally. It is a um, movie is a movie that was once in the past, then it was in the present, and now it's in the no, and it was it was in the future, then it was in the present, and now it's in the past chronologically because it did happen in real time. We saw that movie age in real time. 2015 was the future and how it's six I, oh, years in the at, past i was at the uh twin pines mall on that day when uh, yeah yeah uh it was pretty cool and um and uh, i don't think people realize what the second movie um accomplishes i don't think pe- i think people kind of gloss over it but it's kind of amazing what that sequel what the first sequel does um you have zemeckis and gail who wrote it obviously and they kind of find this hypothetical alternate version of their original story like a fanfic almost mm-hmm. <laughs> and then they make that the sequel they say okay what happens if if the bad guy gets the time machine and then they make it a sequel but they don't you know they don't spend a lot of time in that alternate reality instead they go back to the first movie like you said and 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 you, you i guess in any film a director kind of assembles the scenes you know uh in a certain way um after long hours of deliberating on what's necessary for the audience to see um you know just like zemeckis in the first one like there's a reason he didn't show us certain gaps um but then in the second movie he broadens that very tailored plot and then he fills in all the gaps but not gratuitously he does it as it relates to this new premise mm-hmm. and you and the, and then in turn the sequel um uh, kind of it, it complements the first film and it becomes an extension of it without yes. detracting from it like and a com- like a companion piece, any sequel ever, and it gives you a whole new experience in the process. It does, and it allows you to see something from a different perspective. Again, it allows you to see the first film from a different perspective, 
but knowing that there really was going to be a different version of the first movie makes it even more interesting. Yeah. Because it feels like they kept having to revisit it again and again and again. But there's so many there's so many templates that were established in the first movie that keep getting repeated in the sequels. So many that you may not even consider them templates. Like little things like, Hey, what's that over there? And the character looks and they run away. You know? <laughs> you know, yeah. or or the the body armor that saves Doc Brown in the first movie yeah. keeps coming back again and again. Yeah, um, and they show the Clint Eastwood scene. Yep, in the Clint Eastwood one. And it's don't great. forget the greatest Easter egg of all that no one ever talks about, and that is Ronald Reagan. Oh, yeah. In the first movie, Ronald Reagan's is just a throwaway joke, like, who's the president in the future? You know, Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan! But And then you start seeing Ronald Reagan parts in the second movie, and then the third <laughs> movie, Ronald Reagan, according in the commentary, they mentioned Ronald Reagan was actually asked to be the, the mayor of Hill oh, Valley. Really? In oh, really? I didn't remember that one. And he accepted, but his health was deteriorating at this point. Wow. He was a big fan of the first movie. He talked about it a lot. He was a huge oh, yeah. fan. Yeah. He watched he, – when he watched that scene where they said the joke, he was he laughed for like oh, two yeah, minutes he loved straight. It. And he had to have him re- rewind it because he couldn't hear the dialogue. Well, do you remember he was actually – and they had that uh, Max Hedrum version of him in the Cafe 80s in the second one. But no, he um, – and that's why if you watch the third movie, all the background characters are all old Western people. They're all – like oh, yeah. uh, I don't have any of the names on me, but you'll recognize a few of them from cartoons. But they're old Western, old timey Western people. That was the joke, and you know. And what's funny is that when I was a kid, the third one was considered the worst one at the time. Yeah, it's def- funny how it kind of changes now. Yeah, and when you go back now, the second one is very complex, and I think maybe, and forgive me for saying this, I think maybe some modern audiences it's too complex for them, mm-hmm. because and I'm not trying to say that people are stupider today, but. But dumber are they. <laughs> so, and the fact is, yeah. everything is so program- programmatic that you have to keep track of like four different timelines to watch the movie. But by the yeah, time you, you have get to kind of see, you have to watch it a couple of times. You, well, you have to think in terms of logic again, the same way. Um, I guess. Yeah, you have to think four dimensionally and say, well, I have to, I have to project this this version of the timeline. Then I have to say, well, if this gets interrupted, this has this effect, and that's that's a lot to ask for a modern audience. It's a lot. We live in the age when trailers need trailers. Like, you can't even watch a movie trailer without getting a trailer for the trailer. Um, but the third movie is pretty static. It's pretty. It's all in the West for the most part. It's yeah. It's very. Um, I think yeah. Traditionally plotted. Whereas the second movie, I think, is actually. Um, I think the storyboard in it's pretty perfect. Um, it's pretty cool as far as like the the sequence of events. I mean, you every time I watch it, I. I I appreciate it more and more. Um, it's I think it's one of the most unpredictable plots ever, at least in mainstream movies. Um, I, you can never if you've never seen that movie, you have no idea where it's going to go, mm-hmm. and yet it's so satisfying, uh, especially if you're a fan of the first movie. Well, you, do you remember the scene in the first movie when Marty meets Doc and he shows him the photograph? He's like, "Look at my family," mm-hmm. and then Doc mentions just very casually mentions, "Oh, the the photographic trickery was bad because they cut your brother's head off." It's yeah, just a I didn't even line. notice that until this yeah. time, by the way. And then, yeah. very, and only when you watch the movie again and again and again do you realize all that stuff was right there. All the stuff was right yeah. there, because these movies are designed to be watched multiple times. They're yeah. not meant to be a one and done. These things are built to last. These things are built like the same way Orson Welles constructed uh, Citizen Kane to be watched multiple times. You can watch Back to the Future multiple times and get something out of it every single time. Yeah. And that's... I'd definitely rather watch Back to the Future than Citizen Kane. <laughs> but 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 the cinephiles will tell you 
that Citizen Kane's the greatest movie of all time. Rosebud. Yeah, but because I think, <laughs> I think Rosebud. I think Back to the Future people are Ethan, just so Ethan. Ethan. Rosebud. The film <laughs> snobs, and I am. I am one. I think, and I, you probably would say you are too. Uh, um, I'm. I'm. am a, fi- a film fan. I'll say this. I'm a film fan. I. I like yeah. everything. Film and film. I like Citizen Kane, by the way. I do too. Oh, I love Citizen Kane, and I and I and I like The Godfather. And, Can I and, tell you something though? More? I'm, Can I tell you something? I'm never. If someone said, "Oh, I have these three movies: The Godfather, Citizen Kane, Back to the Future," I bet you 99 people out of 100 would all would choose Back to the Future over those other two I, movies. Let me like, say who's this. Who's going to choose The Godfather over Back to the Future on a given day? Like, let, let me say this: people me, want to choose it, but there's no way it's it's more watchable than Back to the Future. Absolutely, I agree with you. But listen. As much as I like Citizen Kane, I'm much bigger fan of Orson Welles, the persona, than I am Orson Welles, the director. And that's not yeah. because he played Unicron in Transformers. I love what he became. I love his. I love that this fat, jolly, mean-spirited mess of a man took everything to 11, and he made everything crazy. Yeah. And by the way... I would much rather, if you're going to stick me on an island, I'd much rather have Back to the Future than Lawrence of Arabia or The Godfather. I want something that's going to be fun and is inspired. I don't want something sour and dour that follows yeah. a, a straight line. Yeah. Like, I'm sorry. You want I want something that'll give you the, that'll give you chills every time the climax hits. And this one, and this one does, every time I watch that, the Enchantment Under the Sea dance scene, don't I, you mean, I've seen this wait, movie wait, dozens Don't you mean times. Fish Under the Sea dance? Yeah, the fish under the sea dance. <laughs> every time, I, and I've seen this movie so many times. Every single time, I get the same emotional uh, resonance when I watch that scene. And the, the strings hit over Earth Angel, and they take this yes. diegetic song and add non diegesis to it. Yep. And it's like this combination, and it just, like you said, the music in this movie just but, by the way, makes it so good. When they were, uh, when Bob Gale was talking about writing Doc Brown's dialogue, he said it was so much fun. You just took something simple and you just made it overly complicated. And <laughs> yeah. so the 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 enchantment under the sea dance was what Doc Brown called a rhythmic ceremonial ritual. <laughs> yeah. And but you know the but that's see that's another layer to the film. You have Doc Brown talking in this scientific gobbledygook, right? Uh-huh. Then you have Marty talking in modern well back you know modern language, and yet they don't need to translate for each other. Like they understand each other, and and by the end of the third movie, you have Doc Brown saying Marty's lines and Marty saying Doc Brown's lines. Yeah, you know what I mean. And that's the genius of this film, is that it never stops to explain everything because everything ex- is explained in the process. Yeah, it's, everything it's is perfect, delivered. It's the perfect uh, uh, like nexus point between visual storytelling and and um, you know great dialogue, and I think. They just both of them kind of there's like the symbiosis between the two of them, and you never they never over they over explain they explain what they need to explain and and nothing more. And I think that's um, that's one of the things that makes it so well written and yes. so well directed. Um, and, and speaking of the third movie, they, it's funny they switch roles where they do. Where, uh, you know, Marty's kind of like the logical one, and then because Doc has falls as well as Clara, then, you know by. Speaking of that, speaking of great casts, uh, Mary Steenburgen is a perfect addition to this franchise. Yeah, she's great. She's so good. And I told you, I've loved her all my life. She's been in everything that I've ever loved. I loved her in everything I've ever seen. Melvin and Howard. Oh, my goodness. Um, my favorite movie with her is her first movie, which is Time After Time. Mm, oh, yeah, Time Travel. Another Time yep. Travel movie. And, and we'll talk about that in a future episode because we're going you know, to relate to, to that movie. But uh, it's where she fell in love, by the way, with Malcolm McDowell. Had, had children with him. Mm. Yep. But um, but I wanted to say real quick, um, 
when we talk about when we talk about these these perfect things, there's an interview out there, and you could look it up. It is uh, goodness, who was the, who was on the show? Uh, goodness gracious, it's an interview given by. You ready for this? Mm-hmm. Uh, it was Mel Brooks, Peter Bogdanovich, uh, and Frank Capra. Wow. And let me go ahead and get you – I want you all listening out there. I want you all to uh, to watch this clip. Bogdanovich, Who, Mel who was the interviewer? Oh, that's even better. Give me one second. I'm going to get this interview for you. Mel Brooks, Robert Altman, Peter Bogdanovich, and Frank Capra, right? Jesus. Ready for this? Yeah. On the Dick Cavett show. And <laughs> and I love Dick Cavett. He's my probably my favorite interviewer ever after Johnny Carson. Wow. And there's this interview where they're talking about great film. And the I think it was Robert Altman who said there's no there's never been a great film made. And uh Frank Capra agrees with him that there's never been a great film made yet because the the medium's so new we haven't exploited its possibilities. Mm. I think with the exception of Star Wars, I think maybe Star Wars may have been the first one. In fact, I know it was. That you have movies like Back to the Future that could not be done in any other medium. Couldn't be done. It's a cinematic medium. It's the synthesis of visual, of audio, of performance, and of of absurdity. They could only exist in the cinematic form. You couldn't. You could read the story, but you couldn't get the story. It's like reading music versus listening to a performance. Mm-hmm. And it could only be done in that medium. And that's, it's, when you look at, like, I think you would agree. When you look at Robert Zemeckis' output, like in the 80s, I think you probably have one of the greatest performance uh, pieces of all time. You have, and I don't, did he make used cars? Yeah. Okay, I don't count used cars. With, I, uh, with Bob Gale, I think. Actually. With Bob Gale. Um, you have Romancing the Stone. You have Back to the Future. You have Who Framed Roger Rabbit, you know. And then you have Back to the Future 2 and 3. And then immediately you have, you know, Death Becomes or Forrest Gump, you know, Contact and Castaway. But between Mm -hmm. all that stuff, you have Back to the Future, Roger Rabbit, and Forrest Gump. And three movies that rely on special effects that are special. That are using special effects to tell a story in a way that could not be done without them. And it's perfect. Everything Everything about it is perfect. And I think in those in in those three years, uh, 85, 88, and 94, I think – and obviously 94, he won Best Picture. Mm-hmm. But I think all three of those years, you can make a case that those individual – his movies were the best of that year. Um, obviously, Back to the Future in 85, but 88, I'm trying to think of what else was in that year. But um, that would I, – I can't remember what won Best Picture in 89. But I think you could still make a case that Roger Rabbit was – you look back and you're like, that was probably the best movie of that year. Well, I, I would say it's one of the best movies of the decade. By the way, Rain Man. Rain Man. Yeah, <laughs> I think I think back to, uh, uh, Roger Rabbit's better than Rain Man personally, but uh, Roger, well, Rain Man was 1989 and Roger Rabbit was 87, 88, 88. Oh, I thought. Oh, I th- oh, it won it. Oh, that's what I meant. Like, um, I was trying to think of what 1980. Oh, The Last Emperor. Oh, yeah. Oh, The Last Emperor. That's uh, that's Bertolucci, right? Bertolucci. Yeah. Fernando yeah. Bertolucci. Uh, didn't he make Last Tango in Paris? E, maybe. I haven't seen that movie. Yeah, it's just you don't want to see it if you don't like butter. I'll say that. Got it. No, Bernardo Bertolucci is a good. It's a good movie too, by the way. It's a great story. It's a very. But that's a cinematic story. The way cinema, you think it's big, it's sprawling, it's epic. It's it tells a great story. But you don't live in the film. You're always an outsider. And I yeah. think, and I think you agree. I think with something like Back to the Future, you're invited to come and visit and play. 
Um, yeah. And I don't think I'm the first person to ever say this, is that I think Frank Capra laid a lot of the template for something like Back to the Future with movies like um, It's a Wonderful Life. Oh, yes. that's de- I think that's the natural predecessor. I think there's yeah, nothing exactly. even in between those two movies maybe. <laughs> I think those are the two. And the, you know, the other side, I think it's. I think what Back to the Future is. Back to the Future is basically Pottersville. You know, of of It's a Wonderful Life, as as produced by Steven Spielberg's sentimentality, as perfected by Robert Zemeckis's, you know, craft for special yeah. effects. Because it's the same story. It's like let's see an alternative universe of this town if I don't exist. Because that's what's happening. Mm-hmm. That's what happens in Back to the Future. That's what happens in It's a Wonderful Life. Like yeah, everybody thinks Wonderful Life is this great Christmas movie. It starts off with a guy trying to kill himself. Yeah, it's so de- it's so depressing in some regards. <laughs> He's trying then... to kill himself. His brother dies. Yeah, he, there's an overdose of medication. It's what yeah. a wonderful Christmas movie. And it, and you it's know? funny. There's a reason why I think Back to the Future didn't really have a lot of copycats. Like you know, Indiana Jones had a million copycats. Oh my gosh, or like uh, you know, Star Wars even had. People trying to do. Uh, I mean, everyone was trying to tailor their movies to be like Star Wars or Jaws, obviously. Or I mean, these are all Spielberg movies, but yeah. Uh, um, or I'm trying to think of a non or like you know horror movies, uh, Friday Thirteenth, Halloween, like stuff like that. But Back to the Future, like, there's really not any movie that tried to copy it, um, at least not outright. I mean, I think it maybe it's because it's so unique, it would have just been plagiarism. Um, but also, I think it's kind of the tone that's very specific. And all three movies have, um, I mean, each one has a slightly different tone, but I think at its at its core, um, I think the tone comes from the exact combination of its uh, cast and its writers and and its director. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's why other Robert Zemeckis movies never really replicate this tone either. Um, and it's it's hard to really just pinpoint verbally but um, no it's you know what i'm talking about I, I know what you're talking about it's it's one of those things where it's one of those things where i think there's there's some sort of collective collective uh nodding of the head and said this is this movie is itself let's not try let's not blemish it there's a respect it's, for it yeah and, and to be honest with you there's not very much like that star wars Star Wars is a good example of what doesn't happen when you take care of it. Star Wars, the original films, uh, you know, episode four, five, and six, have been so molested by both George mm. Lucas and Disney. They've been so perverted. They've gone back, they've modified them, changed them. They've had prequels that have, revi- you know, uh, that have done like reaction, um, what is it, retconning of certain events. Oh, yeah. You know, you've had so much mucking with that those movies that it's really hard to watch those movies and, and still get the same enjoyment anymore. Yeah. Um, George Lucas thought that flaws in the filmmaking needed to be corrected, which they did not. He th- you know, there's performances that need to be modified with CG, which they did not. But, mm-hmm. but to his credit, Zemeckis um, and Bob Gale, for all his... Goodness gracious, there's a scene in... Um, there's a scene when they were one of the commentaries when Robert Zemeckis was talking about how he didn't like the special effect of the sky, and he says, "Oh, if I could do that now, I could do it so much better." And I thought to myself, "Please no, <laughs> no, you can't. No, you couldn't. Yeah. No, you couldn't. You would put like moonbeams in there. You you would have yeah. ruined it because he's not the same director anymore. He's he's not empowered by his own limitations. When you have yeah. unlimited power, you can do anything, and that you you give over to excess." Yeah, and then you stop also kind of caring about, um, like, approval also, which I think kind of is important. Yes. Seeking approval is kind of important as a filmmaker because you are making something for other people. I mean, you, you're not you're not in a vacuum. So 
when you stop, when you're like, I know, I don't care what people think of me anymore as an artist, you are, you don't become an artist anymore, kind of. Well, um, and you, you, you read a lot about how Spielberg affected this and, and look, truly Spielberg had the Midas touch back in the 1980s and he oh doesn't, my gosh, yeah. he doesn't get the credit as a producer as he gets as a director, because I think his, his job as a producer was much more influential. And, you know, th- there's so much in there that is, that is shaped by Spielberg's like careful eye and watchdog. And I think whatever relationship these guys had sort of deteriorated or something happened because they never continued it in the way they did. And, uh, you know, I think the last great film that Zemeckis has made, like, again, that with all those parameters, was was Forrest Gump. And I told you I had a theory about why people don't talk about Back to the Future as one of the greatest movies ever made. And I'll tell you what it is, and you can tell me yours. Actually, you know what? You tell me yours first. You tell me why you think people don't consider this one of the great movies. I think it's just like I was saying, like, you know, you have, you have a lot of these film snobs who are just kind of hesitant to claim, um, you know, a popcorn flick uh, that's not really sophisticated uh, in the traditional sense. Um, and they're kind of hesitant to call it the greatest movie of all time. But it, I mean, a movie is entertainment. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's art and it's entertainment. And um, I think Back to the Future is I think it's the most entertaining movie ever, in my opinion. And it's also I mean, the artistic decisions that have gone into it are are um, are amazing, um, and I don't think I'm alone uh, when I when I like I said I would rather watch this than The Godfather. Yeah, I don't know what do you think. I think you're right. You're not as cynical as I am. They <laughs> basically go back to 1994 when Forrest Gump won the Best Picture at the Academy Awards, and mm-hmm. the film snobs were all rallying behind Pulp Fiction. Yes, and. And I, I've seen modern commentary that seems to be from my own Back to the Future parallel universe that somehow people didn't really like Forrest Gump, that somehow people didn't really care about the movie, that somehow people thought it was overrated. And I thought to myself, when was this, when did that happen? When was this parallel universe? Because as good as Pulp Fiction is, the idea that we have to choose because the Academy Awards makes us choose, the idea that we have to say, well, this is a better movie so it has to win the Academy Award, somehow diminishes another movie, that we can't like Forrest Gump for what it is. You can't like Pulp Fiction for what it is. You have to choose because it's, you know, it's Thunderdome. Two movies enter, one one movie exits. Well, I think that residual has gone backwards in time and reverberated to all Zemeckis films. That and the fact that Zemeckis had about 12 years of unrepentant garbage with his um, Polar Express and Chris, Post you know, Castaway. I think yeah, Castaway is Post his Castaway. Great I mean, movie. the only, yeah. I mean, he had a, a slight blippy comeback with Flight. Flight. And yeah. I didn't see The Wire, but man, his uh, The Witches was not good. And yeah. I know he's supposed to be remaking Pinocchio for Disney. Beowulf also. Yeah, Beowulf. Oh my Beowulf. gosh. But it's like the special effects did not serve the film. In fact, they deteriorated from it. Yeah. Let's, you know, let's have Tom Hanks in 15 roles. But. But but what I'm saying though, and did he make a Christmas Carol with Jim Carrey, right? Yeah, that was okay, but it still was like it, you know it's missing that yeah. human touch to it though. Well, I think when you tarnish your own legacy like that, there's less desire to go back and to reward people who are so successful. Like for example, Michael Jackson's a good example of this musically. You know, people never will n- people will never say there's a better album than Thriller, even though there was better albums than Thriller. Off the wall, I think. Yeah, even by Michael Jackson. But no, Thriller is the most successful one, so we're gonna we're we're not going to allow you to have any flexibility. Um, Orson Welles escaped that to some extent because he only made one hit movie. Everything else he ever made was considered a letdown. 
And yeah, the, Touch and, of Evil over time has become very uh, beloved, but well, yeah, back then though. This is a classic case of what Socrates talked about, and you know when he wrote about the idea of things becoming dogmatic when you start solidifying them, you write them down. Like we're told, Citizen Kane is a great movie, so we can enjoy it because you can't just watch it and enjoy it. You have yeah. to appreciate that it's a masterpiece. But what if it's you almost don't? It's like a burden. Yeah, watching it. Exactly, exactly. You have all this weight and pressure. And you're not allowed to enjoy something. I mean, who wants to do that? Who on earth would want to do that? That sounds like a terrible time. And and so in some ways, I, I respect the fact that maybe the film snobs haven't codified Back to the Future as the greatest film ever made because it would give hmm. a lot of pressure to people. And I think and, – and I do think personally, I think people discover this film. And it's so popular that people discover it and they love it. And I think to this day – you saw what happened a couple months ago – uh, the very popular show Rick and Morty, which is which is just nothing but a knockoff of uh, Back to the Future, and it knows <laughs> Even it. The name, yeah. Well, they had a preview of the new season, and Christopher Lloyd showed up as Sanchez. Live action, right? Yeah, he showed up as Sanchez. He's like, Bleh. and it's like, yeah, and everyone cheered because they understood that's what you can do with this. Yeah. Um, the only other, the only other groaning thing is when um, uh, what's his face, Seth MacFarlane made his terrible, terrible cowboy comedy. A Million Ways to Die in the West. Yeah, it was pretty bad. And there's a scene when he's walking through the wilderness, and he finds he comes across this cat, uh, whatever, and he opens it up, and Christopher Lloyd as Doc Brown goes, Great Scott! Like, that's lame. Yeah. But you La- know what, laugh, though? Laugh, 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 laugh. Yeah, me exactly. out, though. People were so offended by that scene because of how much they love Back to the Future. Yeah. And I think deep down, I think deep down, nothing pisses off the film snobs more than knowing that regular people love something without their opinion. That Back mm. to the Future has survived almost 40 years being so beloved without any of those top AFI accolades, without any Academy Awards, without any of that nonsense dressing that tells you what's great, that the movie has existed and persisted. And I think it will continue to exist and persist. Yeah, you know? that's that's interesting, um, and and I kind of think of, it reminds me of when um, I mean Vertigo is all, everyone's always I think like yeah. Vertigo, but uh, a few years ago I think it was Sight and Sound uh, put Vertigo just randomly as their number one movie of all time. Well, yeah, the, the, uh, then, the AFI used to do that too. By the way, they was it was yeah. always Citizen Kane and Vertigo. But then, but it, but then I I think I want to say. But but after Sight and Sounded, I think AFI launched it to the top of their list. Mm-hmm. I was like, now everyone's talking about how Vertigo might be the greatest movie of all time, oh, just because like it's like this narrative that someone uh, just decides to make, and then everyone just starts talking about it. That's because that's because the way media is structured, the way media used to be structured when it comes to um, critics, is that it's literally like the food pyramid, right? At the very top, you'd have someone with influence, and that someone with influence would say this movie's great or this thing's great, and mm-hmm. then it would cascade down and would have a ripple effect well everything's been inverted now thanks to the internet so now it's the fans who get to choose it's the fans who Mm -hmm. get to choose it's democratic it's very democratic but it's also very um it's also very dictatorial ship and i'll tell you why it's because there have been little clans that have established themselves there's movie podcasts like ours and other people there's film snobs there's movie buffs there's everything and so instead of just having one or two people decide we've become sort of I hate to say it, like, warlike. We've had different factions. And at the end of the day, which of these movies in these little clans, um, like on a Venn diagram, how much overlap is there? And the answers are a lot more interesting than you could ever imagine. You're st- yeah. Like, I don't know five human beings. I don't know. I have never met five people in my life that have seen Vertigo. 
Really? I've seen Vertigo. I've seen Vertigo. Yeah, you've seen, because you're a film guy. But what I'm saying yeah, is, like... I love Hitchcock, too. I mean, I love it's Hitchcock not my too. favorite Hitchcock movie. It may, it may be top five, but... No, but everyone says, you know, every, everyone's got, everyone says... I, I think Psycho is the most popular one. I don't think there's any oh, question about that. Oh, Psycho is a masterpiece, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and people know Hitchcock, and they know... Like, they all know that. But if you were to say Spielberg, then you can name at least three, four movies that people have seen. Yeah. But the further we get away, and this is something that happens with everybody, the further we get away fr- from the stuff that was popular, the less popular it becomes. And I think when you look at you look at a list of movies that are considered beloved, so many of the movies that are considered beloved timeless classics were not popular when they came out. Citizen yeah, Kane was not very popular. A Christmas Story yeah. was not very popular. Shawshank Redemption was the not thing. very popular. The thing was not the, the thing was hated. Yeah. It was reviled by everybody. Everybody hated it. Yeah. Like and these things happen, right? And a lot of the stuff that was really really How many people do you know that watched The Towering Inferno? Like I love that movie, but yeah. it's not popular now. Yeah, you know you have so many movies like uh, a mad, on mad, Golden mad world. Pond. Like who's seen on? I don't okay. know anyone. My okay, age okay. Who's seen on can Golden I Pond. can I tell you something? I had a yeah. discussion about On Golden Pond last week <laughs> with Henry <laughs> Fonda and Catherine Hepburn. I'd, I'll tell you after the podcast, but I got a connection to that movie. Oh really? Okay. Yeah, but I've never met anybody in the last 20 years who's ever even seen that movie i don't think that movie's been watched in 20 years by anybody can i tell you something there is a sure. little there is a little town in new hampshire called holderness where that movie is the biggest thing ever it is more popular than star wars and casablanca put together why <laughs> because it was town? because it was filmed there oh, it was filmed there i got it okay. there's a store called golden bond store <laughs> <That's> <laughs> oh my gosh so, long story, I'll tell you after the podcast. So, everyone in that town's watched it, but... I don't think anybody's watched it, but they know about it. So, <laughs> so but what I'm saying is, um, I think the the longer you get away from it, the wheat will be separated from the chaff, the chaff. And I think, eventually, it doesn't matter what the critics say. It doesn't matter what the population says. It doesn't matter. Like, I'll be honest with you, and this is going to sound terrible, but I don't really think people really care about Avengers Endgame right now. That movie just came out two years ago, and it made, like, yeah. more money than anything. Or even Avatar, for example. I don't think these movies make a billion dollars. I don't think people are loving them. You know? Yeah. It's, um, it's weird. Yeah, Avatar, there's a whole land in Disney World dedicated to like, Avatar. But you like, go there and it's like, oh, this is cool. And then you go to something else. I went there. I was like, what happened to the Smurfs? But, yeah. <laughs> but I'll say this, though. It's like at the end of the day, you'll know what's popular. People will watch what they want to watch. They won't want to watch something out of an obligation to be a completionist. Yeah. They would say, oh, i got to watch all the movies on the, on the AFI Top 100. Well, if you only watch the movies that people say are great, imagine all the stuff you're missing. You know? Yeah, and, and, and then, you'll, and then you, you, you will kind of lose touch with your own taste because you'll start convincing yourself that you like things because they're on those lists. Like, um, I am I'm, I'm in the vast minority – when I say I don't love Pulp Fiction, I think it's it's my least favorite Tarantino movie, and I honestly love probably every one of his other movies. That's the only movie by his that I don't love, and I just something about I think I just don't love Travolta in it or something. I, I don't know. I'm exactly, something rubs me the wrong way in that. Movie. I am exactly the opposite. Um, yeah. It is not my favorite Tarantino movie, but I do like it, and I do like Travolta in that movie. Oh really? But I want to. I think be... I just don't like him with the die. I think well, that him. I like him in other stuff. It's just well, here's him the thing, with that though. dialogue is weird. Here's what it is, though. I think you. I think it's of a time because I think at the time Travolta was considered a has been, mm-hmm. and what Tarantino sure. did, he helped revive his career, and Travolta would go off to have a very, very, very good 1990s. Yeah, very that's good. True. And yeah. and without Tarantino, I don't think that would have happened. I think he revived him for a new generation that saw the like we we have Face Off, we have Broken yeah. Arrow, 
you know, even have... Samuel L. Jackson had like a kind of. I mean, he he was not. I mean, he. I don't think he was a household name before that. No, movie, he was. was a, he was a mediocre, filthy mouth comedian. Yeah, and, I mean, he was in Jurassic Park, and but no one remembers him from Jurassic Park. Yeah, it's true. He was in Jurassic Park. No, it was. Uh, and he was in Coming to America, but no one he remembers from sc- that. Oh, that's true. And he was in School Days. Yeah, but it was it's Tarantino who was his muse, and that that's a fact. Yeah. But but some to some respect though, it's also become a limitation. Because he only seems to thrive as an actor when Tarantino's the director. Everything else after that, he becomes sort of a cliche. Yeah, typecast almost. You know, and and, and you mentioned uh, Michael J. Fox being a sort of a you know not being a very successful movie yeah. actor. That's true. That's totally true. And you know, even Peter Jackson in The Frighteners couldn't make him into a bigger star. Yeah, and, Teen Wolf is not even does not hold up very well. And he was in that um, one movie where he's like a, a Vietnam vet or something. What was that movie he was in? Oh, man. Uh, I'm uh, trying to think of the – he was in um, – there's Doc Hollywood. And then there's like Bright – Big oh, City, Bright Lights. Or bright Lights, Big called. City. And another – I have another I have a connection to that movie too. Um, filmed uh, – supposed to take place in Lawrence, Kansas. Does not yeah, take place – I read place. the book actually. It's a good It's a good book. It's a, it's a pretty good movie, but Michael J. Fox was the it – the it male actor for for many many years and yeah but i don't think his uh, i don't think his film his film resume keeps up i don't think it i don't think it, yeah, it tracks i mean today. family ties is amazing i mean that's one oh, of yeah. the greatest sitcoms ever i in my, i think did you know awesome. did you see the last episode of spin city when they actually had a connection to to family ties when the, his character from spin city left and met michael uh, alex keaton no, I have not. Seen they that. did it off screen, but they they just mentioned it. It was really fun. That's funny. I saw the uh, the episode where Christopher Lloyd was in it. He's uh he was great in Spin. Spin City was a fun show, um, even with um Charlie uh Charlie Sheen. But Michael J. Mm. Fox was great. He's great on TV. He always he's yeah. just he's really and you hit, and by the way you really did nail it. By the way, I never thought about it, but these are seasoned TV actors who understand repetition, and mm-hmm. they understand the episodic nature of these. Yeah, and um, Christopher Lloyd had just been a, a villainous Klingon in Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock, yeah. with a which itself was a continuation of a TV show, and yeah, he was he was getting he was making his name in movies, and to be honest with you, it was Robert Zemeckis movies he made his name with. Yeah, and, and he's and, and Back to the Future almost has like a cartoony feel to it, um, and the music kind of helps it get there with it, you know. It, Sylvester's score does things that most movies don't do, where it's like it reacts to what's happening in a very like on the nose way. Mm-hmm. If you know what I mean, like you know he he looks to the right and he goes drunk, and you know he looks to the left and he goes drunk, and uh, you know the little twinkle that happens when like certain things pop on screen. Like there's it's very um, it's very reactionary to the action in a in a way that most film scores don't do. They usually kind of just provide this like drone in the background almost well, it's but. like like you said it's like scoring a, it's like scoring a silent cartoon in some ways yeah it's, exactly the music leads and and the reason we have that is because well before talkies cartoons didn't have didn't have a voice they only had symphonic orchestras yeah and, and that's yeah. how you that's how you led i mean i mean even something like peter and the wolf i mean you don't need any dialogue for the animated version because it's all that's done through true. music you know yeah, it was that was narrated but wasn't it well by the, the there's a reason. Well, there's a reason why things were called like merry melodies or silly symphonies, Looney Tunes, Looney Tunes, T U N E S, yeah. Because the music connection was so in- integral to the whole concept. Yeah. And again, I, I I'm not going to give Sylvester all the credit, but I'm going to give him a lot of credit. 
Well, and it's why it works so well with Roger Rabbit, which obviously is mm-hmm. like, you know, Christopher Lloyd literally plays a cartoon. Shh, spoilers. <laughs> For those who haven't seen Roger Rabbit yet. Not just, not just any tune. But, uh, yeah. but no, Christopher Lloyd is, I can't say the F word on this podcast, but he's friggin' amazing. In fact, um, I was just watching, because I know there's a new Adams Family cartoon that came out, and I, I don't know if you've seen them, but whoo, I'm not a fan. But but the original Barry Sonnenfeld Adams Family are two of my favorite movies from the 90s, yeah. and especially Adams Family Values, and Christopher Lloyd yeah. is so good as Uncle Fester. He's so good as Uncle he's Fester great. in those movies. And um, but, but, the, but again, the whole cast was in those movies. Um, but no, I mean, let's, I mean, if we can just, uh, sort of segue back into the, into Back to the Future for a second, uh, let's see here. I, I do have a clip I want to play real quick, and it's a very short clip, but I want, I, I'm going to play it, and I want you to tell me what you think of this clip. All right? Mm-hmm. Here we go. Here's this clip. This is it. This is the answer. It says here that a bolt of lightning is going to strike the clock tower precisely 10.04 p.m. next Saturday night. If we could somehow harness this lightning, channel it into the flux capacitor, it just might work. Next Saturday night, we're sending you back to the future. So, do you remember that scene in the first movie? Oh, yeah. Do you remember what he does when he's saying, when he's talking like that? He points, he's like pacing back and forth, right? And he points to the camera almost. He points to the camera, but then he just trails off. Like you could see his, like his gaze just trailing off. He's still thinking about what he just said. Yeah. So, you know, we talked about wink winks to the, to the audience, but, but it's almost like we're part of it, but we're not part of it. Yeah. Like we're, we're like, they're holding our hands, but they're not chewing our food for us. You know what I mean? Like yeah. they're saying, here's something complicated, but not too complicated. We want you to, we want you to understand it, but we're going to make it a little difficult because if you do it, you're going to appreciate it. And it's and it's like Star Wars in that sense where <clears throat> I watched Star Wars probably for the first time when I was like four. Mm-hmm. I didn't understand about any of that stuff, midichlorians and whatnot. I, but midichlorians, um, what version are you watching? I, <laughs> Or, but I guess that was the, the prequels. But it was so fun, and it's it's awesome to watch. You know, uh, the stuff in the cantina and the stuff at uh, you know, and then in Return of the Jedi, you know, you have the Jabba's palace and the the what the Sarlacc pit, and like you have all these things that you don't need to know what's happening to watch it and to enjoy it and to have fun, even as like a five year old. But then when you do get older and you understand what's happening you've seen it a bunch of times and you understand what's really going on it you, you, there's a whole other layer that gets unwrapped to it and and back to the future is not as complex as star wars by any means uh but at the same time like they don't you don't need to understand every little you don't need to be able to connect every dot uh to to really love these movies because they're just they're just so much well, fun i agree with you i'm going to add something i actually find what they did to the star wars movies really repulsive like for example, the first movie, which is which is the Back to the Future of these of the Star Wars movies, it's the first mm-hmm. movie. It's a perfect film. The original Star Wars is awesome. I love it. I won't say I won't have any negative thoughts about it. Mm-hmm. But what George Lucas did, he went back and kept muddling with it, kept changing oh, yeah. it, and that was offensive. But that, that wasn't enough. Offensive. That was now. Then when Disney got a hold of it, Disney needed to go back and add prequels to it. So let's explain how they got the Death Star plans. Okay, well that's cool. Let's go do this. Well, let's add CG Princess Leia. Okay, well yeah. that's not enough. 
So now let's go add, let's, let's, oh, remember Boba Fett? He died? Well, we're going to bring him back because he didn't really die. And, and you know, yeah, or, Mandalorian. Yeah, Mandalorian. And we're going to do this. We're going to explain this. Oh, we're going to explain how Han Solo got the dice. We're going to explain how he met Chewie. <laughs> we're going to explain yeah. everything. And it's like, can he I? He was actually a hero before he met Luke Skywalker. But it's like, can I just have some imagination, please? Can yeah. you can you leave some of it for me to explore? Because as a kid, you're going out there and you get to make up the stories in your head. And what they're yeah. doing is they're taking back the creative toys they gave you. Like, they give you all these characters and they say, okay, here, have some adventures. But now they're taking them back and saying, no, 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 you have to play the official game. Yeah, these are really ours. Yeah, these we are want, ours. We, we want to tell you how to play with it, yeah. It's like, you know, when people post YouTube videos and they post, like, you know, a song, they dance to it, and then they you get a DMA takedown or whatever. Sorry, you can't have that Prince song. But I like yeah. it. Yeah, but you can't do it. It's it's copywritten. And it's like, no one wants to play with that shit. Like, that's not fun. You just you just took the fun away. It's like that Weird Al Yankovic album, Mandatory Fun. It's like, yeah. it's not fun if it's mandatory. Yeah, you just turned off the boombox during the sing-along. Yeah, but with Back to the Future, they give you everything you need, and you have fun with it. Yeah. And they don't harass you with it. They don't bombard you with it. You have all the tools and you get to watch these guys and girls have fun. And I'm, here's my last thought, and that is the cast. So we talked about uh, Michael J. Fox being perfect and his cadences are so much fun. We talked about Christopher Lloyd, who is absolutely astonishing. He's so much fun. Um, you like Leah Thompson a lot, and I think she does a great job, and she's so pretty in these films. And mm-hmm. and I loved her in Caroline in the City when she played the cartoonist in the 90s. Oh, yeah. she, she, she went to TV too. Yeah. But um, I want to talk about I want to talk about the relationship between Marty and his father and his mother, because when you watch these films, did you notice this at the very beginning when they're having breakfast at the table or whatever? As 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 much of a, as a disaster this family looks, like she's an alcoholic, the brother's in jail, all this stuff. She still loves her husband. She still loves George. Yeah, and she still gives him those cooing eyes, like oh, dad hit him with a car, you know, things like that. But she looks like her life didn't turn out. But when you see him as children or as teenagers, she's reading philosophy books. He's writing short stories. Like, And you really realize these were – and Marty finds out that his parents were people. He yeah. finds out that his parents were pretty interesting. I mean his father was a dork, but his mother was kind of you know loosey-goosey. But, but they were still people, and they, they had flaws. And he was he became very sympathetic towards them. And I think that's, 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 pretty, that's pretty profound for a, a popcorn film. Yeah, no, and and um, I also love the idea of you know you can learn from your kids just as much as as they can learn from you, and um, obviously this is exactly what the, what happens in this movie, and um, and there's there's just like there's so many layers to it, and and Back to the Future is almost a movie that transcends uh, things like themes and character development, um, but still they're there and and um, and they're important and crucial, and you have. And you're talking about when they're sitting down at dinner. Like, yeah. That's a big thing. Like, you know, the family is still sitting down together to eat. Like, there's still, yeah, like you said, there's still this thread of love uh, that that's running through them at some level. Like, all five of them are sitting down together to eat, um, even if one of them is eating uh, uh, peanut, peanut, brittle, peanut brittle. Peanut brittle. But... <laughs> Which I think is from a, uh, a deleted scene. Yeah. Like, I, yeah, I, don't ca- deleted. I don't count the deleted scenes as canon because there's a reason why yeah, they took I them know. out. But, um... <laughs> but... But I mean, they're they're watching TV. But remember, in the fifties, when they got a TV, they started watching TV then too. And you and you almost wonder, like, are they are they sort of suggesting the TV helped break up the dynamic? 
Is is TV the, the bane of yeah, their existence? Interesting. But, yeah, and then you have the brother Joe, the Uncle Joey. Um, that's interesting to think about. By the way, there's a second uh, podcast in a row where the brother from the Wonder Years made an appearance. Really? Yeah, he was in the uh, Meatballs too, and he was uh, Lorraine's br- little brother. That's true. He was. He was also uh, the the butthole kid in Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Also. Weird. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, he was that. Uh, yeah, he was that one kid. He had that look. That brother look yeah. that when that you br- did that like dweeby brother yeah the a hole brother the a hole brother and he was he was it he was it yeah uh yeah, not but... by the way the original Wonder Years the white Wonder Years not the new black yeah, Wonder yeah, Years was... with Don Cheadle no, he's not in I don't think he's in the black Wonder Years by but... the way uh, the black Wonder Years directed by Fred Savage that's right yeah the pilot at least crazy was, uh, yeah that's I'm I haven't seen it yet but I, I do want to watch it I bet he's got a stake in it that's got to be it yeah. By the way, the Wonder Years was very similar. I wonder if the Wonder Years was actually um, uh, something like the Wonder Years or even the Christmas Story was encouraged by Back to the Future. The idea to look back at fondly from a, an earlier childhood and to see yeah. your family from new eyes. That idea of nostalgia and going back and and um, and just uh, like the scene in the diner when uh, Marty first meets uh, George and they're both sitting the same exact way, with mm-hmm. their head on their on their heads, and it's like they're they're so different, but they're Still, you same. know, it's the same. Still a son. And still a son, and it's that's. And there's something just so interesting about mm-hmm. that, and fascinating about their dynamic in this movie. He uh he put that scene in Forrest Gump as well. There's a scene when Forrest Gump is fishing with his kid, Little Forrest, at the end, and oh, their and their heads are tilted yeah. to the side. That's uh, right. Yeah. But I I also do not want to uh, leave without mentioning uh, Thomas F. Wilson. Oh, so he, he, this is. Co- yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, no, you, I got a lot you, to say, you, man. Okay, let's just say this: he does not get enough credit for this film. He does oh not get enough credit. So let's talk about Thomas F. Wilson for a second. I'm going to say something that might be controversial. I think he gives the best performance of the whole trilogy. He might. Yeah, he might. And and he, I think, his the aloofness that he kind of has as um, that he kind of brings to Biff and all his all of his characters, but. There's just this like uh, Biff, um, Griff, that, and Wild this, Bill. Yeah, and be a mad dog. Mad dog. There, there's this, uh, there's this, uh, dis- I don't even know how to describe it. This weird enigma with Biff, and it's so distancing, but that the very thing that like distances the audience from Biff um, offers these opportunities in the second movie for when we peek behind the curtain to feel almost like provocative, like we're not supposed to be there. And like, he's going to yell at the audience. Like you feel on edge. It's very unsettling. And I think it's the thing that I love about the second movie is, is it's so chilling just to watch (laughs) this behind this villain behind closed doors. And it humanizes him um, uh, by, by not just getting as close to him, but keeping us there for an elongated period and and we're like he's gonna catch us along with marty well, obviously but you know it's funny it's so interesting they never mention it until they never mention any of the movies but he lives you find out that he lives with his grandma but you never yeah. you realize well if he lives with his grandma then his parents must be dead yeah like they never mention that like he, you know what i mean and his grandmother sounds like a horrible person like yeah. literally sounds like a horrible person he's but screaming at him but he's this cartoonish buffoon but he's also menacing yeah. But he's a very good antagonist. Like he's 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 absolutely what he needs to be at every moment. And he's humanized, but he's not he's not sympathetic. But no. he's humanized. He's he's unforgi- He's unforgiving still. 
but he's he's still humanized in in the second movie in a way that's very interesting to the way they humanize villains today where it's like you know there are no bad characters like everyone's you know got hard it's like no this guy's still awful yeah he's but, yeah when they, when when they reshow him back in the 50s the second movie the very first thing you see him do is is antagonize those poor little kids by throwing their yeah, ball away. Throws the ball on the roof. And everything is terrible. And you know, he's yeah. he's trying to he's trying to sexually assault Lorraine. He's oh, trying yeah. he's always he's lying about everything. Everything he does is despicable. Everything. Yeah. He's a terrible person. And but yet he's he's almost symbolic. Like by the time you see him evolved, you see him like if this person had power, he'd evolve into like a Donald Trump stand in. Like this mm-hmm. this real estate buffoon with everything with leopard prints and casino motifs everywhere yeah and he's gross oh yeah he's so gross and and um yeah and and even the stuff in the 2015 uh it's just like haunting almost the way that they that that he plays the character and and it's like just this the different levels of biff that we get that we get to see uh, really formulates into something kind of cool, and um, I think he might be the most intriguing character for me um, throughout the series. Well, and and he, I mean, he's not really really he, in the third one. But. He plays his own grandson and his own great grandfather. Yeah. Oh man, Mad Dog is might be my favorite incarnation. And you know, the him. funny thing is though, he's also competent. That's the worst part because like yeah. you see him shoot. He knows how to shoot. He yeah. knows how to drive. He knows how to be a bully. He's got a. He's got minions, right? He can't he's, count to ten, though. He can't count, but he's he's just a perfect foil. Like he's 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 like Marty and uh, and Doc Brown. He's the other consistency. Like he's always there in some in yeah. some form. And that's, another cartoony kind of guy. Yeah, he is cartoony. I I think in real life, um, Thomas Wilson is a cartoon voice. I think he's in SpongeBob. Yeah. Yeah, so, he he is actually, and he he he. I want to say he used to do like improv or stand up or something. Yeah, he was. Not... Yeah, he was like on the Today Show or the Tonight Show. Yeah, like he used to do a lot of. He was a comedic actor or comedian at least. Um, well, he's hysterical. If you watch him in the movie in 4K or HD, he does all these facial grimacing. Like he's giving a performance. Like he's yeah, absolutely giving everything. He knows how to react. Like he plays that consternated idiot better than anybody else like especially like with the running gag he can't tell a good pun like why don't you make like a tree and get out of here yeah. you know it's, and it's his future self that corrects him that finally smacks him him. and uh you know there's a deleted scene that i'm glad they took out but it's interesting where you know when he steals the delorean and goes back and gives young biff the, the sports almanac mm-hmm. like when he comes back to the future he starts like you just see him in pain and they never yeah. they never follow that thread but if you watch the deleted scene, he he gets erased from existence. Yeah. Because he destroyed his own past. Yeah, and he and erased I think himself. That creates a plot hole if they had kept it in, because they talk about like how when he goes back, it starts a new timeline. So I think it wouldn't make sense for him to disappear because he goes back to the A timeline instead of the B timeline. Exactly, and, and I think at a certain point the timeline stuff gets a little fuzzy. Oh yeah. But. Or and you know and and lastly, like I said, it's no matter what timeline they're in, they're always concerned about Einstein the dog. Like yeah, no matter he's, what, he's, he's for no reason other than to say, oh well, he was in the first movie, so we got to bring him back to well, the second movie. There's a scene when uh, they go and they try to when Brown goes to rescue Jennifer, you know, young Jennifer when she's in the house, and he yeah. shows up in the window, and for no reason, all Einstein's in the window. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, okay, he's here because we love it. Yeah. 
and there's no no explanation necessary. <laughs> well, you know, and Einstein was supposed, and I, I got this. I will I will crib this uh, great quote from the uh, the Netflix documentary series, um, the movies that made us. Oh yeah. Which, by the way, ninety nine percent of all the Back to the Future podcasts just plagiarize that episode. That's yeah, it's it's a good episode. Is, it's good. It's very good. Yeah. If you like this movie, please watch that show. Uh, uh, and full disclosure, we know the people who made the documentary, so that we're not trying to promote it. It's just a damn good documentary. Um, but it's funny because Einstein was supposed to be a chimpanzee. Yeah. And the producer said, oh, we can't have him be a chimpanzee. And he's like, how come? And he's like, well, because I've done the research. And it turns out no movie with a chimpanzee has ever made money. And he said, well, what about that Clint Eastwood movie, Anyone Who But Loose? He's like, that, sir, was an orangutan. <laughs> <laughs> it's just funny. <laughs> It's just funny. Uh, it works better as a dog, anyway. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It definitely does, and it's and it's funny to to see the first person, the first uh, living creature to ever travel through time yep. was Einstein. And then, which then, is funny. But then it becomes a joke too, because then when he goes back in the past, he has Copernicus the dog, and so yeah, it's just the movie's the movie's smart, and well, the and the movie's smart, but it's not smart. It's not smarter than you. It's just smart. Yeah, well, and and then there's the wink because you know Einstein always said time travel wouldn't can never happen, and then he was Einstein the dog traveled through time before anyone else. And you know one more thing, real quick, and I never realized until I watched the movies again because I've watched these movies any number of times. Uh, in the the, conce- the the plot of the second movie is that Doc Brown is trying to take Marty back to the excuse me into the future to help his kid mm-hmm. because. Apparently, the kids create this catastrophic timeline where they, they just spiral out of control, and it's all – and Doc Brown you know, traced it back to this one moment when his son messes up. But then you learn at the very end that Doc Brown was lying, that it was actually Marty that messed things up himself mm-hmm. you know, with Flea. Excuse me, not Flea. Uh, needles. <laughs> needles. I'm sorry. Yeah, Needles is Flea. Or Flea, Flea is Needles. Yeah. And, uh, but you see – and that's interesting because Doc Brown knew about this and he refused to tell Marty. But then Doc Brown yeah. cheats all the time. He cheats all the time. He's always going back and forth and trying to change things. Oh, yeah. And you and you don't get the payoff for that until the literal end of the third movie. Exactly. The very, yeah. very end. And so it's just, I mean, everything from the clock tower, everything from there, it's all paid off. Like I wrote down in my notes, the entire Back to the Future franchise is basically Chekhov's gun. Like yeah. Everything you see on screen is paid off for in some way or another. It's yeah. all it's 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 the most perfect screenplay of all time cinematically. Because it's yeah. all there. It's all there. It's satisfying. There's there's I'm sure there's holes somewhere. I'm sure there's some there's some loosey goosey things. But generally speaking, it's okay. It's a beauty mark, not a mold. Yeah. Which, which what do you like two or three better? Um, depends on the day. Okay. Like I mean I it depends on the day if I like the first one better. Like Oh yeah. I don't consider them all one movie. I consider them all an experience, like emotions. Yeah. Um there are moments in 3 that I love to death. Like I love like stuff that I don't think would fit like ZZ Top. Yeah, play, play, <laughs> playing which, uh, like Turkey in the Straw. By the way, uh, RIP by the way to be yeah, yeah. from ZZ Top. He passed away this year, was it? A couple years ago. I mean no. a couple weeks ago. Yeah, a couple, a couple weeks, weeks ago. ago. Yeah. Um the only one without a beard named Beard. Um yeah. and they did the theme song to that one. I love them and apparently they were fun on the set too. Like apparently everyone loved them. Um, yeah, I I, I, I love the voices. I love the background characters in three, like because they're all cartoon voices I've heard from Disney movies, from other westerns. Like the guy who talks like this. Yep. Like that. I couldn't place where <laughs> where he was from, but he's but in a bunch of Disney stuff. I love seeing Doc Brown become smitten 
by Mary Steenburgen. I love their relationship. Yeah. I love their chemistry. Um, I just love the audacity of it and how these two nerds found each other, and how yeah. Doc Brown was Bef- before that was a th- before it was a thing. By the way, like now it's a thing. Like the nerds fall in love with the nerd, but um... yeah, well that forces Marty to become the that forces Marty to become the grown up and and help yeah. Doc Brown. I love the I love the fact that there's payoff for that. I love I like I even love the bad accents of Michael J. Fox and Leah Thompson. They're terrible accents. Yeah. There's that scene when at the dinner table where they're drinking water and the water's muddy. Yeah. Like little gross things like that. Um, I don't know. I just I love a good western. I love the fact that they're have like this is clearly not a real western. This is a cartoon western. Yeah, and it's I, a good it's a good as that. It's really good as a, a like an alt western. Well. The idea that Doc Brown thought that he could somehow get horses to run 88 miles an hour. Like, come on, Doc, you know better. You, yeah, and, you know yeah, better. And by the way, they might have been able – the alcohol thing might have worked if they had tried different types of alcohol, I think. Yeah, I mean there's a lot of things that needed to, for them to you know to gloss over for this movie to work. But for the yeah. most part – but there's such a payoff at the end. Like it's satisfying. What happens at the yeah. end is perfect. Like you get I've, the ending you want. I've always thought it was – highly thought provoking the idea of um like history and time being altered because of love and how both clara and doc never existed past a certain point mm-hmm. but because because of each other they now do and uh well i mean not because i guess doc was there because of his lightning strike but um but because but you know what i mean but um she almost it, it was okay if she survived past that if she went off with him kind of I don't know. That's always been a very thought-provoking idea for me. That that the fact that they're both there alters everything. Could because neither of them existed past. Because she dies in the ravine, obviously. Right. Uh, and then he, uh, you know, he just wasn't there, and his family wasn't there until the 1905 or something. Exactly. Because um, well, they're immigrants. Like that's that's a yeah. big plot point. They never go into it. But Doc Brown's parents were from Germany. Von Brom or something. Yeah, and they changed their name, and then Marty's were from Ireland. Yeah, but it's an inter- it's just inter- an interesting idea to think about um, as a and, and one that's not really um, touched upon, and the and the fact that uh, you go you Doc gets a lot more depth. It, it's funny uh, that Marty's depth he's he's kind of like that Luke Skywalker, like he's the flat character with all these other mm-hmm. um, really deep characters around him. Well, you know, he trusts Doc though. Yeah. He he trusts Doc, but he's also he also he also provides Doc with a grounding level. I think Doc, I think Marty is is Doc's uh, necessary focal point. Like he's his, he's his reality. Like, do you remember that quote he says when he shows him the time? He's like, "I finally invent something that works." Yeah, you know, like finally, because he's never had a reason to before. And if this movie was different, if it had like had like James Cameron written this movie, it'd be a lot more serious. Mm-hmm. And they would have tried to make a point about how Clara and Doc were always supposed to meet each other, that these things were always fixed, that like like history was always going to happen regardless, that time travel yeah, was inevitable. Yeah, they would have verbalized all that stuff. It would stuff, have been right? too much. It would have been way too much. Way too much. Yeah. But instead, you get Doc Brown floating with Clara on a hoverboard from 19, you know, from 2015 <laughs> back in 1885. You're so happy that you just – you go with it. You're like, yeah. I love these characters – Good for Doc, good for Clara, good for Marty, good for Jennifer. Everybody deserves a happy ending. And that's all you care about. That's all you care about. And I think that's enough. 
I think that's enough. And I think that's what makes these movies so great is because they don't over-explain anything. You get to go with it. You get to experience the journey yourself. You know, totally. it's like, it, you know, it's, it's to me, it's like a haunted house. If I told you that the haunted house had a hand that grabs and I told you all the things, that's one thing. But to go through it, even even if you know it's predictable, even if you know it's it's lame, the sheer fact that you're going through it with friends is exhilarating. And I got to tell you, I've watched these movies with other people that have never seen them. And they all love it. Every one of them loves these movies. Everyone. And I would have loved to go see this in the theater during the pandemic. I almost did. But to be in a, to be in a crowd in a theater with people who have never seen it would be would – be, I wish I can go back in time. <laughs> oh, yeah. I wish I could see this back in when it first came out. That would have been so cool. Yeah. Can you imagine, like, seeing something brand new and seeing something so miraculous? And, yeah. and to have it be rewarded at the time. Like, this is not a cult movie. This is, this is a huge blockbuster. This is a game-changing oh, yeah. blockbuster. And it was it was never the underdog, no. but but it it's it's always been beloved. I I think it will be, and I think as we've said before on this podcast, when we go back and we recalculate what the best movies ever made are, I genuinely think, and I I know you thought I was crazy by saying RoboCop, but <laughs> I genuinely think Back to the Future is going to be in the top ten. I definitely do. Maybe yeah, higher. I, maybe I, higher. I think it has to. I mean, it might take twenty years, but I, I think. You look back at just the the cinematic uh, no, notes that it hits, like the score and the acting and just the emotion, the motion and and um, like I always love looking at a character's role in in affecting his environment in a movie. And uh, back to the and I think that's a really important thing that in, that a movie has to have in a lot of and you have to feel like this character has um, not not a free will, but uh, necessarily, but um, the an, an importance and a significance into why he's there and and at least the first movie especially is the quintessential of that concept and it's it's literally the the point of the movie is this person's effect on history and on the future um yeah exactly it's just so good and i think you you it's very rare to find a movie that hits on so many levels from so many different people throughout so many different generations and it works on so many on so many different ways emotionally and i think um when you look at people who like films you know i it's very very rare that you find a movie you can laugh cheer and, and cry at at the same time and i think back to the future is one of those one of the very few and um i mean i i have no problem putting this movie up there with things like the wizard of oz or oh yeah no no way yeah of course it may actually be better to be honest with you yeah it may actually be better. It's definitely influential. I think it also it, it didn't have any copycats. I don't think officially, but uh, it did. People did copy the scope that it that it gave us with just the oh, especially dude. over the course of the three movies. Oh, I think I think this has become the template for all movies. Like I actually think it's not the first movie to film back to back. I think that was the mm-hmm. the Richard Lester's Three Musketeers, Four Musketeers, which I which I haven't seen. Oh yeah. But I think it's become the template for all of Hollywood. Like I know Lord of the Rings filmed it's filmed the same way. The Matrix, Hunger Games, the Hunger Games. Like everything's become a template. Everything's become a major franchise. And to some degree, I think a lot of it owes it to Back to the Future because, as crass as it sounds, this movie was so commercialized. It was so product placement driven, yeah. and we don't really hear about that now. Even though it's it's littered with Pepsi and Michael Jackson references. Yeah, but yet but, that didn't detract from how authentic it was exactly but today i nothing's ever a movie everything's a sequel yeah. every every actor is contracted for three films every you know 
Cin- uh, chronologically, when you're listening to this, you know, Venom just came out in theaters. Mm-hmm. The what's the second one? There'll be Carnage. Yes, yeah, and like that. you know, I'm not going to spoil it for you. I haven't seen it, but friends have seen it and spoiled it for me. It connects to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Mm-hmm. The first one didn't, but the second yeah, one did. That was the new deal between Sony mm-hmm. and Marvel. Uh, that the, the the their characters can now just the Spider-Man universe mm-hmm. characters can go back and forth. I guess. Yeah, they weren't. It wasn't that. It wasn't in place for the first movie, but it's definitely there for the second. Yeah, they just did it. I think like, a year ago. <laughs> or you know, you see something like Free Guy or whatever, and. Um, you know, it, yeah. at the end, it connects to the Marvel Universe and Star Wars. It's like everything's connected now, and it feels is. And how wonderful was it to go back and watch a movie that's not connected to anything? Yeah. Now, although I will say this, um, I did see one of Zemeckis's new films, and I I really genuinely disliked it. The it Marwin. Was the, one. the Marwin. Yeah, because uh, in the original short that was based off of the Time Machine was like a VCR, but in mm-hmm. in Zemeckis's version, he literally made the Time Machine the DeLorean and. It feels. It, it feels. I haven't seen that movie. It feels crass in a way that that I don't like. If that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah. So when when it's a, there's a lot, there's there's always been self awareness in in film. I think at least for in modern era, but uh, the self awareness of the '80s or '70s or whatever is a different kind of self. It wasn't necessarily self referential. Um, it was just self aware. Now I think everything's like. Um, what I don't know. I think there's just too much of uh, self-awareness now. Well, and I'm not going to go into something I haven't seen, but you know they're talking about transforming like the Marvel and DC films into metaverse films. Yeah. And on one hand, oh, you're going to see Michael Keaton and Ben Affleck in the same movie. You're going to see, you know, you're going to see uh, Doc. You're going to see William Defoe and Tobey Maguire in the same movie with uh, Tom Holland. And on one hand, you're like, okay, that that's kind of cool. But on the other hand, mm-hmm. it feels it feels like well, we've got nothing else. We've got nothing else to do, so let's just yeah. mix everything together. It, it just feels like a logical next step instead of like a... a it, it feels like we've run out of ideas, so we're just going to cannibalize our old stuff. <laughs> and that's what it feels like, and it shouldn't feel like that. It should feel buoyant and joyous. It just... Because in the old days, they would remake a movie. You mentioned they haven't remade this. They would remake Spider-Man. Okay, new actor. Okay, remake James Bond, new actor. But now we're just going to go back and and not remake anything. We're just going to keep making new stuff and then use the old stuff. And can I just imagine things? Like, can you just, can you give me some tools again? Can you give me some toys and let me play? That yeah. I don't, I think that may be over with. <laughs> I think we may, yeah. it may be done. There, there are things out there, but they're not the big, they're not going to be as popular as Back to the Future. Like, I'm, I'm trying to think of something like Under the Silver Lake a couple of years ago, I think was something that really sparked, um, you know, afterthought. And That's about that as was... far away from Back to the Future as you can imagine. <laughs> but as, in terms of like, man, I couldn't like, you know, how much you th- think about a movie after it's over and, and this world that it just tr- teleports you to that is so different. Um, and there are movies that do that, uh, but they're few and far between. And I think we're out of an era where it seemed like every couple months there's something that was doing that. Maybe not to the level of Back to the Future, but, you know, to, to well, some of them, maybe just a RoboCop or a... It is funny. Um, it is funny that in Star Wars, you have, like, this small group of characters, and they have the whole galaxy, and they keep running into each other. But <laughs> but in Back to the Future, it's just Hill Valley, just this tiny little town. It's so good that it's just that town. It's not yeah. anything else. Yeah, they never leave, literally never leave Hill Valley. <laughs> and I think that's the power of the film, is that it's so yeah. self-contained. 
It's yeah. so narr- and I think that's why the narrative is so perfect. It's why you don't. It's why they don't run into the astronauts. It's why they don't interfere in other parts of history. They're only interfering with their own history, in their Snow own worlds. World. Exactly, and um, and I think that's what gives the movie its timelessness. And I think that's why we'll be talking about this movie for as long as we talk about films. And I do mean yeah. that too. I I don't see this film going anywhere. In fact, not controversial, Ethan. But I think the prestige of Back to the Future is going to grow. I think. I don't think this film has reached its, its apex yet. I think it's going to keep getting more and more beloved as time it goes by. It doesn't get it, – it never gets dated. Um, it's just literally every – every. Uh, I, I, I've i seen movies that I loved when I was a kid, and I watch them now, and I, I still love them. But, you know, you're like, okay, the, there's a lot that's changed. But uh, Back to the Future, I, I feel the same. I get the same emotion when I was mm-hmm. a kid than I, watched, than I do when I watch it now. And the same just – I'm like, man, th- I, I want movies to be like this again. Yep, and I and desperately want movies to be like this again um, because there were other movies that touched. Oh, there's, up, there's fantastic but, movies, and for different reasons. Yeah, but this is a this is a stalwart one. This is a perpetual one. This is forever, and this is like a nice cinematic blanket. It's nice and warm on a nice, you know, winter night. Mm-hmm. It's there when you need it. It's comforting, and you know what? Very, it's really good. It's a really very good. good movie, and everybody and you should watch it. If you haven't watched it yet, go watch it. And I think. I think we're uh, I think we're pooped out. Yeah. And with that, you have been listening to the Movie Time podcast from Pop Zara, and we have been talking about one of the greatest movies of all time and the greatest trilogies of all time, Back to the Future. And if you haven't seen them yet, well, what are you waiting for? Go back to the future and watch it. Ethan, thank you very much, sir. Once again, as always. Uh, if you like what you listen, yeah. If you like what you've heard, please give us a shout out, give us a like. It really, really helps. And we will see everybody next time in the future. Bye bye. Bella, another one of these damn kids jumped in front of my car. You've been listening to the Pop Zara podcast. For more exciting content, check out popzara.com for the latest on games, movies, tech, and more. 